This is a Big MX podcast brought to you by X Brand Goggles, presented by Golden Tire, Tech One Designs, West Side Honda, TransCanada Motorsports, Roy Wharton Suspension Systems, and 204 Skate Shop. Motocross news from around the globe, but mostly between Emerson and Brandon. We're not experts over here, but we've got microphones. Check out BigMXRadio.com for more content. Welcome to the Big MX Show, brought to you by 204 Skate Shop, Tech One Designs, X-Brand Goggles, TransCanada Motorsports, Westside Honda out in Selkirk, Manitoba, as well as Roy Borden Suspension Systems and Golden Tire. Sounding a little bit different today because we're at a completely different location. We're in the dungeon, the lion's den of Roy Borden Suspension Systems. Roy, you are my guest today, and uh, how are you doing, my friend? Any better, it have to be Tuobi. Perfect. So, uh, I thought it uh, necessary to uh, get a legend like yourself uh, on <laughs> on the program. Uh, you've got a lot to offer, and uh, I thought it would be uh, kind of cool tonight just basically do a uh, Roy Borden uncut. This is uh, this is a conversation between the two of us, who uh, which is just basically um, picking your brain in terms of what you know about motocross and suspension and oils and and you name it. I think it's going to be a great opportunity for um, some some true moto heads just get some knowledge and listen. And um, you've got a lot of experience, whether or not you uh, <laughs> want to uh, admit to the accolades that you do have and uh, and take and take the the praise that I'll give you. Uh, regardless, I, I think that um, you've got the uh, you've got the experience, my friends. So, um, well, it, it there's proof then that if you hang around long enough, somebody thinks you must know something. <laughs> if if nothing else, <laughs> absolutely. Right. So, how are things nowadays? I know when I showed up this uh, this evening, you had mentioned that you are uh, ever busy. Um, how like this, how's business? How are things? Business is so good. Um, I, I don't know numbers because my wife looks after that, but Good. she tells me that this is the best year we've had in 10 years in terms of staying busy. Mm-hmm. And it was a really late start because we had winter till middle of July almost. Almost, <laughs> yeah, honestly, May uh, May 14th, yeah, there was snow on the ground. ground. Exactly, yeah. So um, it kept James and I like wet rags. And Right now, it's it's more snow machine stuff. I get lots of snow machine suspension and lots of snow machine cylinders for boring. Okay, it's a boring business. That is a boring <laughs> business. Yes, doing shop is full. So, as far as uh, the, the 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 services that you provide, R Factor Roy Borton Suspension Systems. Uh, you guys, like what what all do you uh, you tackle, or what can you tackle what? in terms of oh, your work? We can pretty much do anything. Um, I'm not near as big into engines as we used to be. Right. But four strokes, four times the cost, and um, really specialized equipment if you're going to be good at it. Mm -hmm. So the decision was made we would just back up a little bit on that, um, and the suspension just keeps getting busier and busier. And essentially, Roy Borton Race is a suspension shop. That's where we started. Mm -hmm. Engines came later, and then you, you get the runoff of snow machines and watercraft and so on and so forth but that essentially that's it in a nutshell fair enough well with the influx of uh, a busier schedule i understand that you've taken on an apprentice of sorts by the name of james <laughs> Crutes. 
James, a uh, competitor in Manitoba for a number of years and all-around good guy. Uh, how did he originally approach you, and uh, how have you developed that relationship uh, working together to uh, work on stuff? James was a customer first. and As we uh, usually and, are? Yeah, and for the most part. And James oh, bugged me for years. I'll pay you. Just show me how to do this. I'll pay you. I'll show you how to do this. And, and I get a lot of people who say, you know what, can we hang around and watch? We'll discuss that a little later, but yeah. James, James just, he's a good guy and he wants to learn and it's one of the better moves I made allowing him to come in. Excellent. So, uh, like right now he's, uh, busy upstairs, uh, doing some <laughs> of the work, some of that boring, yeah. uh, work. I think he was working on a shock when I first walked in. Yeah. Um, can you see James eventually graduating from, uh, working in your garage to underneath, um, a canopy at a, with a professional team oh, someday? He could do that in a minute. Truly he can. The, the, a lot of young kids dream of motocross as their career and, mm-hmm. and, uh, families support them and it's it's a great sport for the family but the bottom line is there's not a lot of money to be made at motocross and for, sure. for all of the it's got to be a labor of love yeah, exactly for all of the young kids out there that want to be the next carmichael or villapoto or you know whatever um not a lot of them happen out of manitoba so for kids to get involved and james he could go to work at any factory that he wanted to make an application at, I'm sure would give him a job. But those factory mechanics in the U.S. and here in Canada, those are 100-hour-a-week jobs at 48 cents an hour. So yeah, stay with it, and it's a labor of love. Absolutely. And, and for all the times, like I know myself, I'm a big fan of some of the other shows. Of course, Steve mm-hmm. Mathis. One of the uh, the famed tuners mm-hmm. from uh, from Manitoba uh, often says that it was it was a lot of hard work, a lot of thankless jobs, and uh, frankly, a lot of hours, a ton more hours than than most people would think. Um, and if you are to take on a position like that, uh, you're doing it solely because you love the sport and you love working on the bikes and just being around the industry. Mm-hmm. You're not doing it for the bottom line, and you're not doing it for a whole lot of gratitude in terms of. Success, because even, especially even with, uh, like, no matter who you ride for or work for, uh, unless you're working for your top, top guys, you're not doing a whole lot of winning, say, no. you know what I mean? Like, uh, there's a lot of mechanics in through the um, McGrath, Carmichael, Villapoto era, even a little bit James Stewart in there as well. There's a lot of mechanics that didn't collect a whole lot of wins. Didn't collect a whole lot of wins and didn't collect a very big paycheck. Yeah. But, uh, is that something that you encourage James to do? I would like James to do what he feels comfortable and he wants to do. And yeah. I'll help him any way I can to get there. But I remind him all the time. The world is just full of kids who want to do this. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's it, it needs to be give up five years of your life and go do it so you can say, I did it. Mm-hmm. And I went and I conquered or I didn't. But the ultimate position is factory. Mm-hmm. And if you can get on, and and I have a few friends who are factory mechanics and beyond, but they're not getting rich either. No, and uh, the thing is, is like just as just like there's very few factory rides out there, uh, there is the exact same amount of factory mechanics. Exactly. There's one for one, and uh, if there if you've got five OEMs or I guess six with a Husky now, mm-hmm. uh, and you've got two from each one, that only allows twelve twelve people in the world 
who are the, the main mechanic for uh, for North America. Te- for North America. Yes. So um, that's that, that's all, that's rather small. It's a small amount. It's incredibly small. So you better be on top of your game. And you better. Uh, yeah, you need to be on top of your game, and you need lots of luck. And everybody needs to keep in mind that the factories bring their own people. They don't always hire North Americans. That's right. That's you right. Know, there's guys coming from Japan, from Europe, um, Austria. KTM is a huge importer of mm-hmm. their own stuff. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, the way it should be. Yeah. You know, they they build the bikes, mm-hmm. they design them. Um, the guys work in the field are important for sure. And you better get along with your rider because you're going to live pretty close with him. Absolute. Well, uh, it sounds like James against the world, but we wish him the best of luck oh, so far. Absolutely. You've sent him to a few uh, MMA events this year. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw him in uh, Brandon. I know he was at most of the, the Grunthal races, uh, as well as, uh, I'm not sure if I saw him at Minnedosa, but uh, you have sent him out to some of the races. What is his role when he heads out there to represent you uh, at uh, some of these ride days as well as the races? Just to be available. Okay. Just if people want to talk to him, if they're having trouble setting up their bike, he's there. It doesn't cost you anything. Don't be afraid to knock on his door and rattle his chain and tell him I need help. Come and and that's what he's there for. And next year we'll be at all of them. Fair enough. That's excellent to hear. And you know what? Uh, James is champing at the bit, uh, as you were uh, as a as a youngster, I'm sure. At uh, when when this all started, and I'm in, I'm interested to find out how that did that all start. What um, what types of machines did you work on? Uh, you cut your teeth on. Uh, how did you acquire an interest in wanting to work on stuff in general? Most of the uh, when I ask that question to most guys who work on bikes, is that their dad made them work on whatever bike that they had. Uh, what's what's your story? <laughs> it's a story. Um, my father told me on a quite a young age, mm-hmm. there'll be no cars in your life, son. You can have a motorcycle, but no cars. That was terribly unusual when I grew up. Um, so my first bike was a 1949 James with a 98cc Villiers and springs for suspension. And from there, I never, never wanted to do anything except race a motorcycle. And then, of course, there were no mechanics. If you bought a motorcycle, you fixed it because nobody else knew how. So you went and found the greasiest guy in town who was a one percenter at best. Mm-hmm. And he pointed in a few directions. And brands of motorcycles that I raced in those days, Greaves, Boltacos, Osas. I was, a friend of mine and myself ran off to California. We were just kids, but loaded up a Volkswagen Two Boltaco Persangs and a Triumph Flat Trucker. There you go. And down the road we went. Two country bumpkins to L.A. And I was fortunate to get on with the Yamaha. Okay. In Los Angeles. Uh, what year was that? I don't want to tell you. You'll never believe I'm this old. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that my job at Yamaha was a, a company called T&O Yamaha in Lamita, California. And that was the introduction of the first Japanese off-road bikes by Yamaha, okay. the DT series, DT ones, 1968. And that's if you didn't ride a Boltaco or an Osa or a Spanish bike or perhaps an English Greaves, then you were on a Yamaha. Honda didn't build a two-stroke. Okay, and no two-strokes from Honda in '68. Honda come rolling around in 73 with a little CR Elsinore. So from, anyway, my my direction with the Yamaha was working and racing and having fun. And 
nobody made any money. If you picked up 15 bucks a week, that was a really, really good week. Who are some of the notable, notable guys that you would have competed against down there? Down there? Um, first, there was no motocross. Yeah. When I started, motocross was a... There was no motocross. It was hair scrambles yeah. or Class C. I always rode Class C. Class C is flat track. Okay. Big bikes. Um, the guys that were down there, the, the big names of the day, uh, Sammy Tanners and Gary Nixons and, and the motocross crowd that was just starting at the time... Pierre's Cars Makers, was his first European over, yep. Jim Pomeroy, Brad Lackey, um, that whole crowd of guys. And I knew some of them in passing, but to sit and have a conversation of with course. them, I'd have thought I'd died and gone to heaven if that had ever happened. <laughs> it didn't. I was just a, a shrub that wandered around from racetrack to racetrack. And those guys went went on, went on to... to oh, some big things. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. When we came back to Canada, that's when I got big time involved. Okay. In 72. 72, you came back. I came back to Canada, yeah. And and th- then you, you started a business right from there, or? Yep, pretty much. I worked outside the industry for a while, and I grew up in the transportation industry. My parents were involved heavily in, in transportation. Mm-hmm. And my dad never understood a motorcycle. Didn't like them, but he wanted me on a bike more than he wanted me in a car when I was young. So uh, I'm not sure how that worked. Fair enough. Yeah. Don't and, you don't uh, question pop? Nope, absolutely. Not unless you want a harder life. So obviously, with the the Han Elsinore coming out, uh, as you said, seventy three, mm-hmm. seventy three, and, and like the progression of motocross as a sport. Uh, what were some of the advances that you saw through that that decade? Which I imagine bikes progressed rather quickly year to year. Actually, for my my own point of view, I spent some time with Bombardier. Okay. Um, on Can-Am motorcycles mm-hmm. and not in any other position other than to throw a leg over and ride it yep. northern Ontario but I spent a lot of time on, on early Can-Ams and for my money Can-Am was the best of the off-road bikes when it came out mm-hmm. but the Honda Elsinore was light and fast and Japanese okay. and the uh, Can-Ams were not quite so fast and considerably heavier okay um but gary jones and the boys did a wonderful job of winning championships with them so uh, can-ams were good and and the big change came really when yamaha introduced the monoshock and everybody then was scrambling because everybody's running dual shocks and yamaha came along with a single shock that incidentally that cantilever design was around in 1949 on Vincent motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) Yamaha didn't really have an exclusive on it, but they ran one shock and the Vincents all had two, but they were the same basic principle. And then laid down Fox in the mid-70s. If you didn't have a Fox air shock on your bike, you were not even in the hunt. Right. Fox was a huge name and lots of Europeans came over and went home with Fox shocks tucked under their arms to go back. It changed the sport. Changed, those... It changed the sport completely. Um, laid down shocks, picked up more travel. People were goofy from six inches to fifteen inches of travel. You know how much is too much? How much is not enough? Yeah. And some of those was, bikes from that area almost, almost became uh, like pogo sticks. It was oh, they so were much travel. Spindly. Yeah. You know the forks were thirty-eight millimeter. 
now we're running like 40s, 50s. Yeah, 50s, some guys. Yeah, factory, all of the factory work stuff up till now at least has been 49s and mm -hmm. the unobtainables. But the the early ones, um, Makos were suburb handling motorcycles always. Um, had a front fork that lots of guys scrambled to copy. <laughs> um, shocks, for the most part, when you lay a shock down, you create tremendous loads. And if you don't have a basic understanding of hydraulics, they broke frames and bent swing arms. And a company in Minnesota called PDI Distributing created a, um, a truly a, a bent swing arm. Okay. That was magnesium, very light. Um, Dan Hangsleben was the brains behind that one. And Dan Hangsleben was the first half of DG performance. Okay. When, when, there Gary, you go. when Gary and Dan split up, Dan moved north to Minnesota and started PDI um, along with a guy named Sam Kaplinger. And Kaplinger was a design engineer. And out of that came these magnesium swing arms that were incredibly rigid. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the handling became really important and, and before it's like when aluminum frames came into the motorcycle and into the motocross yeah. side the frames were so stiff yeah the, the, the bikes couldn't handle them the, 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 nobody had suspension to handle it the old steel frames chrome molly is flexible tough but the frame became part of the suspension right so everybody just kind of tuned to that and then these the evolution as it comes through yeah a harsh mm -hmm. very harsh base to oh. work off of and um, absolutely definitely There's nothing more rigid than than the modern day motocross bike really so ktm yeah. still playing with chrome mollies yeah you know, as opposed to full framed aluminum but uh, ktm is a little more forgiving and that's a, that's a handful to say so in throughout the <coughs> late 70s early 80s what was the canadian motocross community like? What was the landscape of uh, this new sport that people just started come come about? Um, in the early 70s, there really wasn't much of anything. It was all local. Mm -hmm. Some of the factories played around. By the mid-70s, they had full-blown race teams from the U.S., from Europe. I don't know the year, but later in the 70s, the CMA decreed that if you weren't a Canadian citizen, you couldn't run for a Canadian championship. Okay. Out the door went all of the factories, Faltas, Kinoshitas, Turners. All of these guys that were here were so fast compared to what we had to offer in Canada. We had Ron Keys, um, a smattering of guys that were quick. The world hadn't yet met Ross Patterson. <laughs> that was coming. But in the early part, it was, um, if the factories brought somebody in, CZ was a huge player in those years. CZ brought Falta over. Falta was world champion. Like, yeah. He's riding in Canada. They, he's sleeping in the back of his school bus because that's what, there were no factory teams the right. way we know them today. They were just guys with a half-ton truck and a bike bolted in the back. So what, what brought world champions to... Um, <laughs> Canada, of all Money. places. Money. Money. Kawasaki brought John Eric Salquist. Okay. John Eric Salquist is a world champion many times. He was a gentleman, um, suburb rider, still involved, I believe, with the FIM. Okay. 
um, his cousin, I believe, and I could be wrong, was Shane Drew's mother. Oh, okay. That's under me. So that's how Shane time, got. Uh, so that's that's a convoluted story that can go for <laughs> for another hour. Yeah. But um, his his mechanic at the time, when when Kawasaki hired him and brought him here, was Cliff White, and Cliff stayed at the Drews. Uh, every time Jan Eric was in Canada, he stayed at the Drews in Thunder Bay. So. We had like a world champion motocrosser living in our backyard for as long as he was in Canada. He was yeah. down playing the game. Mm-hmm. Shane was just a kid riding KX80s. Yeah. But Cliff White went on to be the director of suspension and operations for American Honda. There you go. That's the connection there. Um, it's a small community. Oh, for it's sure. It's really, really small community. That's why it's so important to know somebody in the industry. Well, it's... Um, there's, a, there's a lot of family involved yep. in, in motocross. And a lot of kids that you wonder how they ever got where they got. They got there because they worked hard. And they weren't prima donnas. They weren't at the track telling you how fast they were. Mm-hmm. They were at the track learning. And putting in work. And putting in work. And uh, Shane Drew is, is probably the, from our group of people that we deal with here, our peers, Shane has gone the furthest when he got to American Honda and runs the suspension department. But he, he worked hard to get there. When he went to the mm-hmm. U.S., he raced the Canadian Nationals for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And when he decided, I wouldn't even guess at what age it was, but certainly late 20s, maybe even into his 30s. He was never going to be a Canadian champion, and he knew that. Mm-hmm. He went to work for Nolene in America, under the table. Just pay me money and let me learn. Fair enough. And Shane worked at Nolene and got to know a lot of people. He was offered a job at Showa. I won't mention names because it may hang some people out to dry, but... The day Shane was supposed to start at Showa in America, Cliff White offered him a job at Big Red. There you go. And Shane wandered over to Big Red and has been there ever since. That well, that was long, the dream job. Time ago. That was absolutely the dream. Who works for American Honda? Like He was hired to be McGrath's mechanic. Yes, originally in the originally, 1990s. Yes. End of 96. Mm-hmm. Into 97, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. course. Um, and that, of course, is the year that the aluminum frame came out, uh, and which was not an agreeable uh, change for no. uh, the king. And um, he he made the switch to Suzuki a late season, mm-hmm. late late off season switch. Uh, didn't have a lot of time to get the bike together, and his season suffered. I don't remember him actually even competing very well that year in outdoors for sure. But Supercross is a mess. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't good for him. No. And uh, Shane was McGrath's mechanic for about two weeks. And then McGrath went down the road. And, we'll and uh, Shane with, was without a rider. And to be perfectly honest, I think Tertelli was his next one. I think. Fair enough. But I, I don't follow it that closely. So back then, or like late 80s, or in throughout the 80s, how does Roy Borton suspension and uh, all of, like the work that you're doing, how does you, how does you, you progress into the racing side, uh, working with athletes, uh, and um, basically 
taking on work and being competitive? Um, small, and I mean small business. Mm-hmm. Um, motocross was a love. Mm-hmm. And I had good friends that suspension was so archaic back then. It didn't take a genius, you know, fixed rod front forks and, and stuff. We'd throw them in milling machines and cut the slots down the damping rods to create a different feel. Really, nobody had much of an idea about anything. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, we took on distributorship of of uh, the first line we, we had was Golden Spectral Oils. Mm-hmm. The second line after Golden Spectral was Renthal. We brought Renthal into Canada. You were Renthal Canada. Renthal Canada. Um, White Brothers, we were a big distributor for. And we were the first distributor for AXO Clothing way back in Hmm. those yesteryears. Out of that, (laughs) my poor wife has stuck through this thick and thin and, and nobody's getting rich in motocross. Mm. And to make a small fortune in, in motorcycle racing, you have to start with a big one. You get down to a small <laughs> one yeah. real quick. Yeah, um, We dedicated a lot of years to competing and a lot of good riders, good riders over the years because there was no... Uh, the Tim Croft, Yuri Heinen, and Shane Drew, my oldest son, Tommy Benolkin was a huge pat on the back for us and Tommy Van Olken was an American out of Minnesota that was absolutely the nicest kid you ever met and he was the fastest kid in the world that nobody knew anything about he was stupid fast and he <laughs> stuck with us for three years um, we supplied him with KBH clothing um, I learned lots from Tommy okay. about going fast because Tommy was fast Tommy was crazy fast so that's what what time what year was uh, that? 1979 when we picked Tommy up. Okay. Um, 1980 he was still with us. Um, a little bit in 81 we brought him to Canada to do the nationals even though he couldn't run for a Canadian championship. Mm-hmm. But his introduction to Canada um, he opened so many eyes because nobody had ever seen that kind of speed. Um, at the time uh, Zoli Barini Jr. out of Alberta was a full-on factory rider for Yamaha. He was riding an OW43 and OW43s or liquid-cooled 125s the world had never seen and at the time we ran a, a Mugen Honda okay. yeah. and uh, Tommy tried the Mugen and didn't like it and went back to a Suzuki and uh, we did the national circuit across Canada, and and Tommy at that time his only problem in life was he was so fast that lots of times he'd just pull over and let a bunch of guys go by and then roar off after them because he had more fun passing them than he ever had winning a race. And Which can be pro- problematic <laughs> when you're trying to win races. Yeah, it it is, and it's demoralizing, and it's hard on sponsors. <laughs> and Renthal was extremely difficult because we threw we threw a lot of races away. Just, but we're kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were just kids yeah. having fun. And uh, Tommy went on to ride for Team Green Kawasaki in America for a few years. Okay. And uh, tore his knee up and he decided his wife and family are a little more important than motocross. But 
if you meet the man even today oh, he's crazy fast really still, still crazy crazy fast that's interesting mm-hmm. with of course the the vet world championships coming up this weekend in uh, mm-hmm. um, this is actually this is a 30 years have you have you ever been uh, able to attend the event nope I haven't Tommy's done a few of them okay he's gone down spanked Brad lackey oh, big time bad a few years ago there you go lost interest um, it and yeah Tommy's just a good guy but he and he was real good for us and through Tommy came Ross Patterson Mm-hmm. Ross Pedersen is, for my money, um, he's the greatest champion this country's ever produced, ever. 42 championships. Try that, 125 to 5,500 at that time. Yeah, all in the all same through, day. All in the same day, all three motos, all 30 minutes. It's a long day, and and Ross And to is, be versatile as well, you had to be able to make a 125 scream but then also have the delicate power delivery on a 500, mm-hmm. which can rip your hands off if you're yeah. not careful. So, like, that's something to be said in terms of his ability to adapt and change the way he rides a bike, because you can't tackle all three the same way. No. If if anybody has an opportunity to just sit with Ross and talk to him, Ross can tell you a thousand stories in a thousand ways. And Ross is the only rider from Canada that could run consistently in the top three in America every weekend. It didn't matter. Pedersen was there. Pedersen went to Unadilla, finished, I don't know, seventh, eighth? In fifth eighth, overall. Fifth overall. Okay, then you're up on me. I, 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 I <laughs> yeah. remember him going eighth, and everybody's saying, who's yeah. Ross Pedersen? You know, he's just a klutz from Canada. He was big and strong. And stamina, most people would kill for. He just could ride forever. Fair enough. And tough. <laughs> oh, the, the 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 stories the of, of his toughness. Ball was an apt uh, yeah. statement. He, he earned that nickname. He did. Uh, to the Tommy Benolkin side of things, years ago, Motocross Action put out a magazine article: so "Top Ten Assassins of Motocross in the World." Mm-hmm. Tommy Benolkin is number ten. Really. Ben Olken, nicest kid you ever talked with, a little bit of a lisp. Uh, girls loved him. Big head of curly hair. Thin, uh, really outgoing. Good guy to know. But he would walk through the pits before the race. And he knew who the fast guys were. Mm-hmm. And his favorite statement was, I'll yell at you once. The next time I come over you. Nothing given, nothing asked for. Yeah. So you get one warning. Either get out of the way, or you're going down the next corner. He put Hannah upside down in Wasugal, upside down, <laughs> down the hill. Got black flag for it. Benolkin was an assassin, no question. And Ross Patterson was tougher than Benolkin. So he was a tremendous handful. Was Ross on that list? No. Ross He's didn't not. make that list, but Ross wasn't an American. Ah, and, there you um, go. and MXA is a wonderful entertainment magazine, but beyond that, I'm mm-hmm. not a huge fan. Fair so enough. But you want to talk tough riders? Those guys were tough, tough riders. And you kind of did you have to be back then? Was was mm-hmm. that type of the, was that the name of the game or no? I think that that what Ross introduced to motocross on both sides of the border was fitness. Okay. You know, Ross, there was, there was a kid out of Toronto, Doug Hoover, they called him the sweeper, hmm. and he 
he had a whack of talent and he was terribly fast and Ross kept beating him and beating him and beating him. And, and Ross tells the story that Doug asked if he could go to California with Ross for the winter for training. Yeah. Ross says he stayed with me in my apartment and we were good friends. And then we went out and we'd run our five miles, 10 miles, whatever it took. I made one mistake. I was out with him one day and his tongue is hanging down around his knees someplace and we still had two miles to go. So I sprint the last two miles. And by the time he got back to my apartment, I had a glass of orange juice and my running gear off and feet up on the thing. But Hoover never forgot. Hmm. The last 10 minutes of every moto was all about. Russ definitely should never have showed him how much stamina he really had because Hoover beat him the next year. There you go. So, but that's the last time you ever beat Patterson. Patterson is, is competitive. For sure. Absolutely, and stayed competitive um, into the, the early 90s. Anybody that can put 42 Canadian championships on the line. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody's even close to that in any sport. Any sport, anything. Yeah, the longevity and the dominance. <sighs> for sure. Like, there's certain, there's athletes that can stay relevant for a long period of time. There's, like, there's quarterbacks, the mm-hmm. stick and ball sports, your Cal Ripkins of the world that stay relevant for a certain amount of time, but... Are they dominant? Are they the best player in the game for that long? Never. I, I think if anybody went back and looked at Ross seriously, he came out of Alberta. He started in one year. He won a junior championship, senior championship, expert championship. Right. All in the same year. There you go. Started as a junior, finished that championship, moved to the seniors, win that championship, moved to the expert and win that one. Oh, that's a fast guy. No doubt. Uh, where did uh, where does Earl Reimer come into this? He's he's er, late, mid to late eighties. Earl, um, Vermilion Bay, Ontario, population. Pick your number anywhere from two hundred to two hundred and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, came up into Manitoba to race. His dad brought him up every week. Yeah, and Earl carried that on for twenty five years. Like, okay, Earl was just a thirteen year old. YZ85. Still shows up today. Still shows up occasionally. Um, Earl's nickname showed up in the snow machine industry as Scrap Iron because he's tough and he works hard to stay fit and everybody should go and watch Earl in the sand. Earl has a sand track at home and he practices for 30 minutes and then he pushes the bike around the track for the last lap just to see how good a shape you're really in. Holy crap. Earl is, um, I'm getting a little bit of feedback on when you need to have the table. Just sorry. My bad. Um, I have a theory about motocross and it suits me sometimes and sometimes people don't think much of it. But the theory is if it ain't hanging on by a thread, get up. I don't want to hear you whining and crying. My Mm -hmm. leg hurts. My ankle hurts. You're racing. If mm-hmm. you're not tough enough to race, move over. We came from a really tough school. Earl Reimer is Kim Hood. Uh, these guys are tough. They go down hard. They get up. Nobody has to call an ambulance for them. They'll walk to the ambulance. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. And I get some flack because it's, you know, kids, if you're hurt, you really should stay down. But... The old school theory is if it ain't hang on by a thread, get up. Earl Reimer is so tough. I never have to ask Earl for an extra effort. 
No, actually, that's one of the things I noticed from Earl's character in general. He's absolutely 100% the most no-nonsense guy I've ever met in my entire life. Absolutely. Does not mince words. Does not, uh, he'll, he'll joke around. He'll have a laugh. He's got a sense of humor. In fact, a pretty dark one at that. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he's dead set stone serious when he's on the line. Mm-hmm. And, um, just a deadly competitor. Yeah. He is. That's why it allows him to at, uh, he's 45. Uh, give or take a year. Give or take yeah, a year yeah. now. Uh, and, and still can hang it out there with, uh, kids. He could be, well, he, he's been racing against kids that he could have fathered for, oh, yeah, for 10 years. A long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, like, um, and, and still collected championships in like 2001 that you guys did? Uh, I guess. 2001, where he collected the championship. I believe he was running the number, the one the following year. Um, another, other riders that, that you worked with, uh, in around that late 80s, early 90s, um, Shane Langdale. Like, Mm -hmm. how, how did you end up working with some of these riders? Shane was never a fully sponsored rider from us. He was a, um, a competitor and a, and a really, really good rider. And I don't really know that there was any reason that we didn't have some kind of contract. But my contract with the riders of that day, of that particular era, Donnie Formo was a huge. We took Donnie Formo as an 18-year-old kid from Swan River, mm-hmm. from an absolute... Everybody in Manitoba knew he was fast, but we took him to the Nationals. He finished fifth in the country. Just an 18-year-old kid yeah. with hair everywhere. Not so much anymore. <laughs> Not so much anymore. <laughs> no. It's a little challenged. Yeah. Uh, How are these guys as testers? Like, I got it. I got it. Like, you're a suspension guy. How did they give you feedback? Were they helpful, or were you just putting together the best thing you could and they Um, go racing? There, I don't think I've met maybe five riders that really know what a bike is doing underneath them. Good. Um, It doesn't make them bad testers because if it's bad, they know it's bad. But mm-hmm. they really, the finesse, the, the, the guys that understand Ross Pedersen, Tommy Van Olken, Earl Reimer. Surprisingly, um, I always tell him, you got no talent, you're just tough. Yeah. And Donnie Formo had Donnie Formo, James Simner. Simner still has more talent than any other writer in Manitoba. James, in in his own way, if if he had been left alone to his own devices, I think would have been a Canadian champion. He just was so fast, and it was natural. And mm-hmm. he listened, and and he did everything, and he knew what a bike did underneath him. But there weren't very many riders like that in my whole career that mm-hmm. were like that. Alan Dick was good. There was another good good guy could tell you what was going on. My oldest son was real good. Olken was good. There were there were good riders who could tell you what was, the suspension was doing, but most riders, the suspension builder, better be standing on the side of the track watching to see what happens because right. he, the rider doesn't really know. He just knows it's not working. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a talent if you can pick that up. Not many of them. Well, how many hours go into setting up a race bike for these guys? Like, uh, if especially if they're not all that helpful in terms of what if, to do. If you're able to see it, if I was taking. A rider out to specifically set the bike up, mm-hmm. four to five days. Four to five days. Yes. So that's how many hours on the bike each time? Like probably two four hours to five each. Five hours so. a day. Okay. On the bike, 
two to three hours taking everything apart and trying something else. Hmm. At least one hour just to talk to the rider hmm. that, that what goes on, how it works. Um, suspension is, is the single most important thing on a motorcycle. More important than the nut cranking the throttle. The, the suspension has to keep him up. So right. it's um, a lot of people don't understand exactly why it takes that kind of time. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of changes. There's 72 valves and a rear shock. Uh, what combination would you like? There's, <laughs> there's many combinations. <laughs> Understanding um, for anybody that has any interest in suspension, never mind Roy Borton Race, never mind Factory Connection, never mind uh, uh, whoever your suspension builders. Yeah. Put them all aside. If you're just a kid that's out there, spring rates, spring rates, spring rates, spring rates. Like, get the right springs under your bike. The stuff the factory produces, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Marty Smith, American, fast, fast, fast. First supersonic man of, of American motocross in the mid-70s. Right. Shows up at a Supercross in Montreal, flies in. They push a box stock 1978 Honda. Not the best handling bike in the world. Box stock, right out of the box. The dealer just brought it and threw it out. Marty won. Going away. The stuff they put in these bikes is good. Mm-hmm. You, you can build it better. But what you get right from the factory is tremendously good. Put the right spring rates under. And the other thing is bike balance. If the bike isn't balanced, I don't care who you think you are or who built your motor, you're not going anywhere. It's an unbalanced bike. And there are certain bikes that come from the factory unbalanced. That's just the way they're built. So learn how to do that yourself. That's not a big expense. You can do that. Anybody can set their bike up balanced. But how you do you... To, you need the right spring rates. Okay. You need to have the right spring rates and, and motocross action and all of the gurus. You gotta have four inches of sag. No, you don't. You need to have whatever sag is available to keep the bike balanced. From there, if you're on a sand track, you can get more sag. If you're on a supercross or arena cross, tight tracks, you can tighten up the sag. There's lots of things you can do, but without those two items, you're beating your head against the wall. It's, I want your money and I'll take it any way you want to spend it. But really and truly, get dad to go out to the track with you and get the bike balanced. And if you have a problem, hit James up when he's at the track. He'll do it for you. There you hit go. Hit Roy up when I'm at the track. I'll do it for you. It costs you nothing. There you go. That's, that's the service. That's the service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the CMA versus CMRC battle that basically was forged in or forged in the late 90s uh there was some um championships that were there was they were basically dueling championships for a short period of time there was riders who ran one and not the other uh obviously they didn't promote each other very well whatsoever and up until recently cma still being active with supercross um what what was what, what's the, what was that battle like and um ugly, ugly. and ugly. yeah so yeah. like tell me a few a few memories from um, from that Marilyn Bastido was CMA. Um, she cared about CMA, Canadian Motorcycle Association. Motocross was just a little finger of that. Mm-hmm. They had street riders, road racers, tourers, 
trials riders. They they covered the whole nine yards. And the CMA, I believe, is still the only representative of the FIM. So for World Super, anything on a World Supercross tour, you've got to be FIM affiliated. Mm-hmm. The CMRC doesn't carry that. So those are CMA events. Okay. Um, Mark Stallybrass saw a need. Um, CMA really didn't make a lot of effort for motocross in and of itself. It was there and they promoted it and they did this and that. But Mark, um, I think came from Yamaha originally marketing something. Um, Mark understood motocrossers were getting the short end of the stick and he set up series and, and he went province to province and knocked on doors and, and put together pockets across Canada. Um, Ken Bentley, Jody Zedrow, um, Manitoba motocross of that particular era, sat down. Earl and I were at a race in Barrie, Ontario, CMRC motocross championship race. And, and Earl had beyond a good day. I think we finished third or fourth for the day in 125 class. And Mark had never seen Earl ride. He didn't know who I was and I certainly didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, we came back and I talked to Manitoba Motocross about it a bit and, and said, you know, the guy's on to something. He's getting big-time riders and big-time events and lots of sponsors. Manitoba signed in and signed on with CMRC. Uh, and there were some headbutting and and stuff that went on, but I got a phone call one day from Zolly Perini, Edmonton. And uh, CMRC was a couple of years into their format and CMA had backed off completely and weren't doing much of anything. But Zolly wasn't impressed with what Manitoba was doing. Manitoba was talking about splitting off from the CMRC and, and running their own Manitoba motocross and yeah. the heck with the rest of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zolly phoned me and said, you got to have a talk to these guys because... Um, CMRC is the best thing that ever happened for a motocross rider in Canada. And it's, it's always a heavy hitter. He's past Canadian champ and, and he's genuinely, him and his father are great guys for mm-hmm. motocross. So we talked a little bit about it, but in the end, Manitoba elected to move on to themselves. And the biggest single argument with the CMRC was that it was so expensive. Um, so, so expensive. And, uh, the first CMRC national they had here at Grunthal. Um, I don't know the number split down anymore, but at the time, uh, Grunthal Motocross, Manitoba Motocross was probably going to lose ten, fifteen thousand dollars on this national. Really? And my good wife came up with an idea that would perhaps put some more money in their pockets, and they called it Vendors Roll. That was her name that she coined for it. And then she went to every dealer in town and every manufacturer and said, come on, guys, set up. We'll have a row of tents set up for everybody, and it'll cost you like $250 for the day, but mm-hmm. give people somewhere to go. And uh, Mark Stallybrass, when he showed up, he was so impressed. That became standard fare at every CMRC event around. There you go. Vendors row. But in the end, um, I don't know, it was good, bad that Manitoba left. But CMA really is, to the original question, is irrelevant for motocross. 
to the best of my knowledge, the CMRC mm -hmm. rules. Yeah. And, uh, and they do a good job, you know, they promote it and they work hard at it. And Stally Brass had a dream and he made it come true. So there you go. And we still have a series today. Yep. All right, guys. All right, guys. It's time for a commercial. Time for a commercial. Let's start off Let's with start Tech, off one with Tech One Designs. Tech One Design is the one-stop shop for everything custom when it comes to motocross or lifestyle in general. They've got apparel, t-shirts, both pitch shirts and just casual shirts, graphics, over 24 semi-custom designs. Obviously, you can do a full custom kit yourself, two special editions, and 19 different backgrounds to choose from. Tech One Designs has been doing this for a number of years, since 2010. Been doing unbelievable graphics, you name it. Phone wraps, helmet wraps, neck brace decal wraps, anything custom, they can make it happen. And uh, they've been doing so for quite some time. Um, hit them up on it at techonedesigns.com or email jamie at techonedesigns.com to get started today. Make your way down to Westside Honda Polaris and check out the brand new Honda Grand. Honda's revolutionary 125cc fuel-injected mini-moto ultimate weapon. A must-see for all motocross enthusiasts. From the Grom to the usual suspects like the CBR600RR, CRF450R, Westside Honda Polaris of Selkirk, Manitoba has you covered. Check them out on the web at westsidehonda.ca. Call toll-free at one 482 7782 Boom! Westside! What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat ball. So, what do you think of Rich Taylor? Lighter than hair and stronger than steel. So what that means is it can move much faster. 2014 X-Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X, Volcano, and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. What's up guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, 
or just maintenance, he's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Gordon has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown full rebuild on your forks or, or shock, call up Roy Borton today at 204-633-2722. Story time. I just want. <laughs> I thought we just did this. Well, we did, but uh, more more story time. I'm going to name off a few guys, and as I name them off, uh, I'd like basically some memories and uh, your thoughts on a few of these guys that uh, um, have been um, whether whether or not they were big players in terms of working with them as athletes or uh, just just great great people that you've you've met along the way. Um, we, we've talked quite a bit about Ross Peterson so far, but other, but uh, nevertheless, I'll start off my list with uh, with the rollerball. Um, first of all, what was your first uh, experience with with uh, with Ross? What was how did you meet him? <laughs> uh, we went after him with clothing because at the time we were um, heavy into um, at that time O'Neill clothing, and uh, we went after Ross and signed him to a contract. And all I knew about Ross was that. He was winning a lot of races, mm-hmm. and uh, we met him in Saint Gabriel de Brandon, Quebec. And Ross was pulling about a thirty-foot trailer that was about four feet wide and six feet tall. And in that, he had three bikes and his bed. That's where he lived, him and his girlfriend. So that was my first. I knocked on the door, and this big, tall kid came gangling out, and I introduced myself to him, and. And he's wearing our clothing, but I'd never met him up to that point. We just talked on the phone. Yeah. So, um, Ross is, never mind the motocross thing, Ross is a good guy. He's loyal. And he brought something to motocross that nobody else has done. I don't care where you go with the next name. It's Without Ross, there is no Canadian motocross Absolutely. Uh, next one on my list is Claude Giguere. <laughs> the honey man. Uh, his parents raised bees. So okay. Claude, lots of honey. There you uh, go. Claude Giguere, uh Claude and I have known each other forever, and, and he was always a little bit out there, uh, riding off-brand bikes and weird stuff like that, and, and having fun, and you know what, for a local guy, he went fairly fast and enjoyed life, and he was just a good guy, and that's the way I consider him, just a, a good guy. Fair enough. Um, what about Mark Medock? I'm trying to think of the name of the band. Weezer. Weezer? Weezer. Okay. <laughs> Weezer, Weezer. Whatever. Mark was a... Mark Medock is a, a tremendous Manitoba motocrosser. Never did a lot nationally, but uh, we had a huge team in those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny Winnestock um, was Scott Harland. No, Scott wasn't on the team. It was okay. uh, Brian Junkie, Danny Winnestock, Mark Maddock, Kevin Kamita. There were five of them. I don't remember the last one. Anyway, they were all in California. In the short Mark Maddox story, mm-hmm. all in California, and we were distributing, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the clothing, the guy blitzed into the industry, Team Tam, 
blitzed into the motocross industry in the U.S. had the trickest clothing you ever saw. It was just like unbelievable. And mm -hmm. and I met him in Vegas, I think, at a trade show. And he said, oh, you got to get, I'll give you all outfit, your whole team. So when the guys went down, and there's five of them, cube vans and race vans, and they're all in the winter training program. And the first race is Vancouver for our series yes, here yeah. in Canada. These guys, I fly out to meet them there. And I haven't seen the guys now in a month and a half. They get into the hotel and they're all there and they're all excited and we're going racing the Supercross inside the dome and it's just going to be wonderful. And then they got all this fancy Team Tam clothing and it's all done up with Wheels West, which is our company at that time. And, mm -hmm. and uh, they all go to the start line and my wife and I are standing there watching them. On the back of their leathers, they have it all embroidered, Roy's Boys. So there you go. There you go. I said, guys, that's not a good sign. Roy's boys. I'm not real sure I like that idea much, but <laughs> anyway, they go out and, and, uh, from there, I, that race went and then they went to Calgary for the next Supercross. Lost the whole team in practice. Literally. Out in practice, the promoters had said, you guys that are new to Supercross and you're in practice and you're not jumping doubles and triples, stay to the right. Don't goof around in the center of the track because you don't know who's coming behind you. Kevin Kamita is leading the charge and these are all good riders, really good riders. And there's a triple and Kamita hits it and he's up in the air and he goes down. Some kid cuts across the track and Kevin T-bones him big time. Hmm. I might have to back that story up. I think it was Maddock that T-boned him big time. Maddock was over the bars. I'm getting the story all goofy. But at any rate, Either way. the next rider that's coming knows Kamita because the next rider coming is Maddock. Maddox he falls into the, that mess. Maddox got nowhere to go and Kamita's on the ground and Maddox hits him right in the back of the neck. Mm -hmm. Full tilt in the air, coming through the air. Behind him... I think is Winnestock and Junkie. The whole team is gone. In one big crash. In one crash in practice. Um, Medoc broke collarbone. Kevin Kamita on the ground broke two collarbones. Both of them at the same that's time. All of, that's all of your collarbones. That's all, that's, that's all you got, buddy. Nothing yeah. left. They take them to the hospital. The whole team's in the hospital. Team Tam Pants. The whole team's lined up in emergency. Team ER. Yep. Team ER. And the kid that caused the accident gets pushed in in a gurney. In with the team. And Maddock recognizes the jersey number. He's going to kill him. Like he's, he, wants a, he wants a piece of this this yeah. guy. And, it, you know, it was funny at the time, but, but Mark is so competitive. Mm -hmm. So competitive. So everybody comes back except Kamita. He's in a hospital. Yeah, he's he's done. Mark phones me because Kevin's dad called him and couldn't get through to us. And he said, "You get hold of Roy. Can you tell him to meet the plane in Winnipeg? That Kevin's coming home, and I'm not going to get there for an hour after the plane lands." I drive to the airport, and Kevin comes out, and he's strapped the cross across his bound up tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what I see coming off the plane. You can't help but smile because he, he's hurting. Like, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a struggle. 
and he's I said Kevin buddy are you okay yep he said anything I can do to help and he said mm, nothing you want to do <laughs> <laughs> and I it kind of twigged a little bit and, and he said this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever been in my life I'm, yeah. I'm 17 years old and I've got to have somebody wipe my bum yeah, because I can't yeah. And, and we hauled that became a, a joke for, for years after. For sure. Yeah. yeah it was. Yeah. It's a traumatic experience. It was. Yeah. For the team. It was, it was a tough goal, that particular one. But Medoc is a super competitor. He was a Manitoba champ. Uh, there's a thousand other stories, but nothing you want on the air. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, another guy with a, a ton of stories that, uh, you might not have, that you might not want on the air, but, and maybe, maybe not some of you worked with, but definitely a guy you may have come across in your travels, Jim Holly. <laughs> Hollywood. Hollywood Holly. Hollywood Holly. Hollywood Holly and Ross Patterson had tremendous battles. Just knocked down, dragged out here at the Winnipeg Arena. Um, huge arena across Bruce Rathbone, Night Out Entertainment, Sam Gates. Um, promoters, Mantle Motocross is involved, Roy Borden is involved. Um, Holly was a, a showman. They call him Hollywood for a reason. Yeah. Um, and he was every bit as big and every bit as tough as Ross Patterson. And they asked no quarter of each other and they gave no quarter of each other. They T-boned each other. They ran over each other. They went hard and heavy. They created tremendous interest in motocross in, in everywhere they went. And Jim Hawley, uh, he's an American. He's a promoter. And, <laughs> and Hollywood for a reason. But go. a good guy. Now, this is someone that uh, you've spoken to me about uh, a, a number of times, and uh, about m- many, especially riders now in Manitoba, definitely wouldn't know. Some guys from uh, from back in the day would, but John Vitesnik. Jan Vitesnik. Jan Vitesnik. Tell me about Jan. Number eight in the world, 1972-ish. Um, he and his family behind the Iron Curtain. Walked out of Czechoslovakia into Hungary. And you mean walked? I mean, took the car as far as they could get, drove it off the end of a cliff and walked over the mountain. At the time, 30-ish, maybe 31, 32 years old. Mm -hmm. Incredibly smart. And I say without reservation, he is the smartest individual I've ever met. I asked him once, what does it feel like when you walk in a room and you know you're the smartest guy there? Like... And he gets all embarrassed and fluffery and so on and so forth. Suburb machinist, suburb businessman, um, told us once he's a lousy parent. <laughs> but his daughter's a competitive golfer. He, he, he is just... At six years old, he was told he was going to be a machinist because that was the Iron Curtain. That's You did your aptitude test and you were going to be a ditch digger, a doctor, a lawyer, a a bum, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, and they told yeah. him he was going to be a machinist. And he is a superb machinist. He holds a ton of patents, um, develops stuff for me. That little thing right there. What am I, what am what I holding you, What you're holding here? in your hand, an anti-twist. When Johnny came to work, to came to this country, he worked for us. And Johnny was holding a front fork one day. And he said, Rye, watch what happens. 
and he takes the one front fork and he pushes down sharp and I said yeah and, and he said watch the axle push down sharp and the axle turns it's just the spring winding up tries to turn the fork Jan says I have a better idea for sure I make something you're holding it right there the very first anti-twist in the world what does this do exactly sits the spring sits underneath it the fork cap sits on top of it when the spring tries to wind up it doesn't it, move it doesn't it just rotates on the bearing hmm. short story <laughs> we could be here all night I, we most likely will the, the bottom line when when he developed this thing we put sold quite a few of them and we're from Manitoba and I certainly don't have the financial well-being to tackle the world with that particular unit. Mm -hmm. Shane Drew, suburb motocrosser, good, good friend, good friend, still today. Mm. Shane Drew was living here in Manitoba, racing here. Johnny Vitesnik eventually started a little business of his own. And I could tell, we, we spent a, a long time talking about Vitesnik, but yeah. Shane was a part of all this. In 1986, 87, yep. Shane jumped to the U.S., went to work for Nolene, yep. eventually went to work for Honda, mm -hmm. 1988 Hondas, they were built right in. Really? Yep. Every motocross bike built today has an anti-twist in it. It's f more effective than, than this first prototype, mm -hmm. and it no longer has bearings. Mm -hmm. They use a super slippery... A little tool that rides on a circlip. Okay. And it turns. Hmm. And that's, now, and I that's said to Shane, born from a... Do I sue you for this, Shane, or do I sue Honda? <laughs> <laughs> and Shane laughed and said, I didn't have anything to do with it. And I'm sure he didn't. But yeah. it was just, it was, it was funny because Johnny says, for sure, Roy, I think maybe Shane took a little secret when he went. I, I think he may have <laughs> yeah. uh, contributed. But there. I keep this around just... For sure, it, it's just an interesting thing. Absolute, and uh, so like obviously John or Jan Jan Vitesnik, yeah. sorry, um, one of the most influential people uh, that you've worked with, uh, huge mind um, and um, huge talent, huge talent. Um, he's still still around today. You've, still, you've told me. still lives in Winnipeg, has a home in Florida, another one in L.A., and and has world patents. Outside of the motorcycle industry and everything he's ever done, he has patents. And uh, he's, he's really a good guy. And to the motocross family that this particular program is going to be broadcast to... Of course. You remember the name. And if you ever get the chance... Jan is still here. He still goes out and rides. Now, I don't know if he's going to MMA events or Manitoba Old Timers or wherever he's going, but he still goes out to ride. Mm -hmm. He was number eight in the world. He is still wicked fast and has a thousand stories. Raced Cuba, raced Russia, raced North America, everywhere. We got we, we got to get on, on this. Right here. For sure. Well, I, I'd, I'd love to meet them with the guy one day. Moving on, we, we've uh, my next guy on my list is Shane Drew, but we're gonna skip over him because we have we've, 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 touched, we've, on we've, we've, we've yeah. touched on him lots. Next guy is someone who basically owes his entire professional career and would still be working at Steve Cycle if Shane hadn't gotten him down to uh, to work down there. Let's talk a little bit about Steve Mathis. 
Well, Shane made the comment that Steve is a much better announcer and and uh, journalist than he ever was a mechanic. I'd agree. Um, <laughs> and and uh, Steve, uh, Steve was actually a pretty decent motocrosser himself. Um, far too big a man for the bikes he rode. Always running around on a little buck and a quarter, and he weighs like two sixty five on a good day. He's mm. a huge guy, but he's knowledgeable. And Did you ever work on his bikes? Um, yes, but I think when I worked on his bikes, it was his dad that was bringing them. Ah, in. okay. Um, Steve was just a kid, like a really young kid. Dad yeah. was still still working on the bikes for them. Um, and I run into Steve now and again. Um, he's he's done well. I mean, he went down and <laughs> winds up a factory mechanic, and and Steve would be a little hard pressed to be a, a real good mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, he's knowledgeable and, and he can get the job done, but right. but he's not going to light the world on fire by his abilities as a mechanic. He's, right, he's he's knowledgeable enough, and at the local level, he'd be a hero. At the national level, he's better off a journalist. Right, I think uh, uh, one of the things that carried him through his career is a guy whose attention to detail mm-hmm. and putting together a race bike was more his thing rather than really developing yeah. and, and, and doing a lot of this, uh, the trickery that really squeezes the extra horsepower and, mm-hmm. ma- and makes the, the, a race bike what it yeah. is. Um, like, from, from his racing days, what, what do you remember about Steve? Um, Big on well, 80s. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> big, big on eighties. He he's uh, my recollection of him is more a bull in a china shop than okay. than being that smooth, fast kid that went everywhere. He, he just he he's a big, strong boy, and, and he used his strength. He's, we've had a few riders that come through, uh, some with more talent than others, some in, incredibly strong riders, and that's where Steve was. He was just a big tough kid you couldn't move him with Lawrence Ham there's there's another example yeah you look at Lawrence that's what Steve was like as a young man yeah Lawrence paid his way through university winning money races in America racing just did, racing wherever wherever he could go to make a buck he went and try and move Lawrence Ham off the inside line boy you need you need to be a really big rider and that, that was Lawrence's he was an excellent starter and he'd just get the whole shot, and he'd hang that inside line, and you're just doomed, man. I once heard a story uh, from, of course, uh, Lawrence himself about a, a time where he took Steve to an arena cross race in Detroit Lakes, 19, would have been probably 91 or 92, and uh, one of uh, Steve's first years on a, on, a, on a big bike, and I guess... Um, Lawrence had uh, I loaned him either some gear or some, the go- the, some goggles, and uh, Lawrence had a first corner crash. Mm-hmm. Steve's out front, last corner. Lawrence parks Steve, and goes over to, to over the finish line to win and back to the pits. So Steve gets back to the pit and just throws throws the goggles that he was lent, and absolutely throws a hissy fit on uh, on on, uh, um, on Lawrence. So the two of them uh, like combatants, but uh, obviously uh, Lawrence having uh, two different years holding a national number in the States. Um, great rider in his own respect. Absolutely. absolutely. And like absolutely. you said, he, uh, he, there's a, he built his first house on the, the money one, one-off motocross, yeah. or at least put himself through school for sure. Yeah. Um, other guys we touched on earlier, Don Formo. Um, apparently a long-haired kid who had yep. ton, tons of talent. 
Um, would you? Would it be fair to say that uh, Don was one of those guys who maybe didn't realize uh, his potential? Absolutely. Don Formal could have been and should have been number one in Canada. He, he's his parents own a car dealership. Uh, Donnie, well, he worked hard uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Been living in Swan River and driving here every weekend to race. It's, it's not a cheap way to go racing. Nope. And uh, doing the nationals and so on and so forth. But Donnie had had everything. Donnie's biggest single downfall was that he 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 had his little group of friends, mm-hmm. and that's who he wanted to be with. He didn't want to be traveling with old guys going motorcycle racing. He yeah. wanted to be with his friends, and and in the end, it hurt him. Um, that window's pretty narrow. Oh, when, for sure. When you're hot, strike. Do yeah. it. You know, because the if you're going to hang around and do it next year and the year after, you're going to find out that you missed that train, man. It left without you. And I felt bad for Donnie. Donnie and I were together a long time. And uh, we parted company, and, and we didn't part badly. It was just he wanted to try something different, and mm-hmm. he went his way, and uh, I picked up Earl. That was who came after Donnie for me. Who, uh, of course, and then Earl would go on to be an absolute menace and a and a and a pain in the ass for for Don Formal for the next yeah. fifteen well, years. They, Donnie beat Earl lots, and Earl yeah. beat Donnie lots. The the difference, I won't say I was the difference, but I certainly knew all of Donnie's weak points. Okay, um, and and he could be exploited. Mm-hmm. At at some levels, um, but in terms of sheer speed and sheer talent, Formos, as I said earlier, he and and uh, Simner were the most talented riders I had seen. Now I don't go to a lot of races, so there may be kids out there with more talent than that. But from my perspective, of right. a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and I would go back on the road with Earl Reimer tomorrow morning. Not a problem, not a problem because it, it's. Um, a lost art in this sport is reading a track. Okay. Nobody reads a track anymore. Everybody says they do, but they've got no clue. Mm-hmm. And Earl and I spent a lot of time walking tracks and picking lines and finding lines. And I never had to find a line for James Simner. He always found them himself. There you go. He's 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 a tremendous talent. Well, that's the next guy on my list. And honestly, um, even from from watching the way he rode, as I was a youngster coming up, uh, I believe he ran the number five on Suzuki's. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely one of those guys who I think um, two stroke or four stroke, he still was dominant, but really lent himself to uh, the like a, a two stroke riding style, mm-hmm. and um, just seemed like someone who could. Really makes makes make something happen if if, if all things fell in the place. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, what held him back. Uh, what were some of the things that made James so special in terms of of riding, and what what still makes him special? He listened. He absorbed everything you gave him. Everything you gave him. It, it didn't matter. It, it's um, lots of kids have speed, but you got to get around the track quickly. Mm-hmm. All the speed in the world isn't going to help you if some guy passes you on the inside or the outside in the last corner and wins a race. It's You're just another second-place finisher. Mm-hmm. And Simner, once we showed him how to read a track, 
he could read a track and he could read a writer and he had that killer instinct much like Reimer if you he could get you in his gun sights he was on you really really quick um, no I, I like James I think he could have been really special right and actually closer to the end of um, well your big time involvement in the series mm-hmm. as well as his um, most dominant professional time you also took him on as a bit of a, like you guys were doing a training program as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. Um, what was what was like what direction were you guys trying to achieve there and um, the training program actually was developed by Ken Bentley okay from the university yeah and uh, not many people know it but Manitoba Motocross should make an extreme effort to find him back and, and go after training, right? Because Bentley is head. Couldn't up. agree more. Oh my goodness gracious, he's he's a fitness freak, and he he does it at a world level. Mm-hmm. He's been everywhere in the world. He's he's a university volleyball coach. He's he's competitive and cutting edge. He knows everything that's coming. What's here. There's lots of ways that you go out and run around and run around. You're keeping in shape, but really you're not improving your fitness. You're just yep. staying in shape. He is on the leading edge of everything. And and Simner bought into that big time, big time. He just, he, he understood that there was a few seconds of lap here. Okay. And, you know, and a few seconds of lap is... That's, that's a winning significant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially with uh, like the top level of Manitoba riders at the time. <laughs> Not a whole lot separating them, honestly. No. Like, we're talking fractions of a second. You yeah. had, going back to almost fifth or sixth place, six guys that could all run the same laptop. In in the mid-80s, five of the top ten riders in Canada lived right here in Manitoba and raced right here in Manitoba. Well, what's changed? They're gone. There's nobody here anymore. No. The last one we had, um, the young kid from Morton, Winkler, uh, Ryan? Yeah. Miller? Oh, uh, he's yeah. from Miami, Manitoba. Okay, Ryan Miller. Miami, okay. Yeah. Ryan. Um, I've seen him race, and, and there's a kid with a whole ton of speed, but I don't know him well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a big, tall, gangly kid, and, and sometimes that leads itself to good riding styles and skills, yeah. and sometimes it doesn't. And um, I think he, he had tons and tons of potential. Um, I'm not sure that it was ever... Fully realized. Fully realized. Mm-hmm. Um, I have too many of the few races that I had been to at the national level mm-hmm. that I had seen him. He's a tremendous starter. And he'd get a great start and race back to 12th and 10th and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's tough. And he's got more talent than that. He yeah. just never quite got where he started in 12th and finished first rather than, right. than get the whole shot and then fade back. And it's not a lack of effort. You know, he's he puts forth good effort um, and I've not spent enough time no I haven't spent any time with him so I'm yeah. just kind of running off at the mouth but that's just an observation for sure like I think uh, a lot of riders who uh, would say like they have a certain amount of talent if they had a tenth of the determination and toughness of of a Ross or Laval Peterson or uh, a Neural Reimer would have would have achieved that much more. I think what it's been on put on record where Earl Reimer has achieved the most with the least. Well, I, I, I would agree whether you're snow crossing or motor crossing or whatever, whatever yeah. Earl puts his mind to, he's, uh, you know, his, 
Earl's dad, and we lost him a few years ago, but mm-hmm. Bill was a, a really good guy, and we'd go running, and Bill would come, and Earl's like a Clydesdale. You can hear him coming like 450 feet before he rounds the corner. You can right. hear him. He's just a, he's so heavy when he runs, and his dad it floated. He, he, <laughs> he just kind of, he just appeared. He was, it was funny to watch him run. He was just for a father and a son to be that miles apart, both very competitive. Oh, for sure. You know, you know, Bill was a tremendous stock car racer, but but that's another place. But just to see the two of them as from same family, father and son, and go running, and Earl's like a Clydesdale, and Bill was like an Arab. Like, he just got out and floated around the track. There you go. <laughs> that's good. That's very similar to how my father and I lay bricks. He's <laughs> fast and accurate, and I'm... Less so. So, <laughs> yeah. doesn't yeah. it, the, 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 sometimes the tree is on the edge of a, a cliff, yeah. so, but, uh, you, you take, um, certain, um, certain traits from, from, oh, hopefully you do anyway. I know, um, Earl seems to have, uh, like, he's basically made a name for himself on toughness. Yeah. And, uh, I think that, uh, most people who have gotten to know, uh, Earl, he's, he does have a, I wouldn't say a softer side, but he definitely has a side of, uh, of, of, of comedic value as well as, um, just a, just a fun loving guy yeah. in general, but he loves to win. Yes, he does. And, um, Second and he's, place doesn't mean much to him. No, and he's not in a super good mood when he doesn't. Um, there were lots of long rides home. It was quiet. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, in, mixed into the Ken Bentley era with uh, Morocross was the Jan Zedrill and uh, Jody Zedrill uh, era. Uh, mm-hmm. What can you tell me about those guys? I know Zo- Jody was a uh, top flight pro in Manitoba yeah, before was. his accident. Um, I think Jody Sean after the accident more than he Sean before it. You know, it was he was he was uh, a good pro and and. He was a rider who didn't leave his brain in the toolbox when he went to the track. He was smart, and, mm-hmm. and he rode smart. It was just a stupid accident. Nothing more, nothing less. But Jody rose to the surface um, after the accident. He uh, he gave back to the series. Oh, he gave back so much. And uh, he literally ran. Ken, Ken Bentley was, was the driving force. At Manitoba Motocross, but Jody Zedro ran on Manitoba Motocross. He, he was dot the I's, cross the T's, make it happen. Um, we lost Manitoba Motocross. Lost a good guy when I let him go down the road for sure. Was, for sure, uh, and like that was the the, the heyday of Manitoba Motocross. Yeah. That was like basically. Uh, I started racing in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first races uh, on 80s. Um, Jody was gone by the time I was on 125s, but um, all I remember is there, there, like the numbers were huge. Mm-hmm. There was more events. I remember we had an 18 round series yeah. in 2002. We now have an 11 round series, yeah. as well as we had three arena cross races, which yourself was highly uh, involved in. Um, how'd that all come about? Who are you? Like, you're, you're promoting those with, uh, with a, Ken Bentley. Ken and I, Bentley. Yeah, my, and, actually, um, Debbie was more in this than, than I was. Debbie, fair enough. Debbie ran most of it and set most of it up. And but those the, were, those were great events. Those were great events. And, um, it, but great events, as much as everybody liked them, mm-hmm. there were people 
in power in towns that didn't want them there. Hmm, you know? Really? Um, when we lost Morden, and, and that was simply a change in the power structure in the Morden community, I mean, you elect new people, and the new people get appointed, and they change the way things are. And yeah. We never, in five years that we did arena crosses in Morden, we never had anything less than a sellout for two nights in a row. Yeah. But in the end, that wasn't deemed something that the town wanted to be involved in. They didn't feel that was fair. And that left only one venue left. and that Which was Selkirk. Selkirk. And these things cost... By the time you do the whole series, you're in for three or $400,000. Yeah. In terms of costs and so on and so forth. And nobody ever made any money at it. It was just a, a thing of love. But you're giving away $5,000 purses. And, and those are... It, it drew a lot of writers. Well, that's and what drew out guys like Doug DeHaan. Exactly. You know, exactly. It was a place to come and, and make some money, and it was entertainment. It was a, a a good deal, and if we could have found a replacement for... First race I ever saw. <laughs> was it? Richard Worry coming yeah, up oh, yeah. from uh, North, North Dakota, Dakota yeah. putting in some races on a KTM, taking home the prize. Richard Worry was a tremendous indoor racer. Short, tight tracks. Yeah. Yep. Even Quick qualified hit. for a few supercrosses yep. as well. Absolutely, no. He was a he was an animal in, on the inside for the sure. Two sixty three. Yeah, and uh, but if we could have found a replacement for Morden, it would have carried on. But one one event is not enough. You've got to do the right. series. And, and for what I remember, the last time we did uh, an arena cross at one of those, like uh, which was one of your events, uh, was a uh, Easter long weekend, mm-hmm. and it was unseasonably warm. And what I, what stuck out for me for that event is that at every other event, there was snow on the ground and there was nowhere else to ride. And I specifically remember during practice or during qualifying during the day, our motos were done and it was nice enough to literally go ride at an outdoor track yeah. that day. And with, um, the fact that it was 90 bucks, uh, per class mm-hmm. for, for people, kids to, uh, or for athletes to enter, race two classes, 180 bucks for one race, but you're going to race both races. So there's almost 360 bucks in entries on a weekend where you could ride outside made it tough. And, uh, I think that was, uh, unfortunately the straw that broke the camel's back on top yeah. on that one. Actually, Selkirk always at the very least broke even. Okay. And for the most part, it made a few dollars. Yeah. And Morden did as well. Morden was excellent, excellent event. It was great for but vendors. That, like that yeah, was, it like, was, it was great. We got stung big time. Porters of Prairie, they that was a bought and paid for event. They canceled three days before the event. Down, down in Portage said, "Nope, not not in our town." Hmm. And you, advertising dollars you don't get them back. No, you know you it's. it's we had contracts that had to be fulfilled, and that one hurt, and Dauphin hurt, and and there were a few ups and downs with it, and insurance. You used to be able to buy insurance for $1,250 a night, and um, CMRC, um, Mental Motocross pulled out of CMRC, and we were buying insurance locally, and um, it was... Uh, I'm pulling a number out of the air, about $1,500 a night or whatever, so $3,000 for the weekend mm-hmm. insurance. Yeah. But um insurance company called us four days before the event and said it's $5,000 a day. 
And that's significant. I mean, the insurance and, and that's, you know, the world changes and insurance claims go up and the underwriters are demanding more and, you know, it's, um, it's like you said, there's nothing we can do. Like, this is it. So either you're going to do this and swallow the $10,000 in insurance costs. Yeah. Or you're going to cancel. Yeah. So you bite the bullet and you do it. Mm-hmm. And if you were going to make a dollar, it certainly didn't happen on no. that particular weekend. Hmm. But there were, there were just things like that, that just. And it's sad to see way. those types of things go because I think that was a great way to keep the excitement of the series going. You kept tabs on people over the winter. Uh, you'd see them at those three events mm-hmm. rather than usually like two at one, one at the other or vice versa. And, and they kind of kept, got, kept, kept you motocross at top of mind awareness. Whereas now with such a short series, we used to start first of May. Mm-hmm. Now we start end of like beginning of June. Yeah. And now we used to race into October and now we, we're, we're done early September. Um, it just, it, it's tough to uh, generate revenue in terms of sponsorship because you're talking about a series that only uh, runs for five months a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in terms of when you're like, say if you're, you know, support Manitoba more across, you're only going to get um, five months of advertisement uh, via either their trailer, uh, the, the being at the track, mm-hmm. the program, which what have you. So as, far as exposure it it kind of hurts it and then all of a sudden like riders find that like they've got more off weekends and off weekends turn into going to the cabin and guys find out that there's more girls at the cabin than there are at the motocross track which leads to less guys at the track in general so um well i think the sport has got so expensive there's no easy way to do it anymore no it's 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 big bucks um, it used to be the cheapest of the motorsports, and I don't yes. think you can say that anymore. No, no, not even close. It's it's big dollars, and, and over the years, it's always been expensive, mm-hmm. but now it gets goofy expensive. And Earl doesn't come much anymore um, to Manitoba, and, and he drives like four hours to get here and four For sure. hours to go home. Yeah. But he said, I get here at 6 in the morning because sign-in's over at 6.30 or 7. Yeah. My first race is at 11. My last race is at six o'clock at night. Yeah. I'm sitting here doing nothing. Mm-hmm. I pay big dollars to get here. So he doesn't come much anymore. And no. it, it hurts him too, because Manitoba is still the most competitive of the three provinces. Totally. Nord, Northern Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Manitoba far produces better riders than the other two. Right. So you, there's still water finds here. its own level. And like Earl said, I race in Ontario, but really there's one or two fast kids. Yeah. Here, here there's a whole bunch of fast kids, so you go as fast as you have to. Right. For him to push himself, he needs to have that carrot. Everybody and, does. You, yeah. you need to have a long stick with a carrot at the end of it to, mm-hmm. to chase it. And um, I, you know, there, there, I don't know how many different organizers now. There are Manitoba Motocross, Manitoba Old Timers Motocross, Manitoba Dirt Riders. Um, there, there's four or five people all chasing the same dollar. So, it gets really expensive for a family. For, for sure. sure. You know, it's hard on the sport. Well, that's why I've, um, one of the reasons why I've selected to go back to two strokes. Mm-hmm. I know, uh, like my, my dad had a 2005 KX 250. He didn't love it enough, so I chose to do it for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where, uh, financially, it was more viable for me to have a lights out two stroke that 
literally, like, I can make that thing go just as fast as any four-stroke go. I had Jimmy Dakotas ride that bike in the pro class, go six for six against the best in the province, minus Ryan Miller. So the bike can do it. It's not the bike. It's never the bike. And so, like, it, that, that thing doesn't hold me back whatsoever. And I can have a bike that's on point and performing well, and I can work on it. Well, there, there's, back to my buddy Shane Drew, and we were talking when the four, four strokes first came. Mm-hmm. He said, Roy, for sure, there is no question. Four strokes, four times the cost. So if you can fix your two stroke for $500, you're in for 2000 There you go. And yeah. I don't know a lot of families that can afford $2,000, $3,000 bills once or twice a year on top of the purchase of the bike. Yeah. On top of the entry fees, the the gas, the et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, and the price of things goes up in general in terms of bikes, and like obviously a, a brand new two fifty four fifty is ten thousand dollars or eleven yeah. twelve after tax mm-hmm. now, um, and that's not absolutely unheard of in terms of a price, but it's the fact that when that thing needs to get serviced, a it's not you who's doing it, no, and b the 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 parts that are involved are expensive and and when something breaks on a four stroke lots of things break on a four stroke mm-hmm. whereas with the 250 like with my 252 stroke when i blow that thing up i know what's wrong mm-hmm. oh, it's and i know like i can call headingly on the way home or whoever i call for parts and if it's not in stock it will be in the next week and it's under 300 bucks yeah no, me and a buddy put it back together for a case of beer yeah it's, so it's it's I'm, I'm a huge believer in two strokes. Absolutely, mm-hmm. the four stroke parade has, has in my mind run its gamut. A, a good rider on a go find a 15 year old Honda 500 two stroke mm-hmm. and put the right rider on it, and he'll give any four stroke absolute fits. Around oh, for that. sure. No question about it. That- well, it was proved this uh, a couple of weeks ago when Travis Pastrana goes out on a 500 <laughs> service Honda yeah. engine uh, with a Suzuki frame and uh, goes out and arguably within seconds, and that guy's rusty and he's old and broken, yeah. racing against kids and he's didn't do half bad. All good. Yeah. Great lap times, yeah. was able to backflip the stupid yeah. thing, yeah. and... Uh, I think honestly, the, the, the only reason why we went away from four strokes is because we as a market, um, and society as being lazy, when you, like, cause a four stroke makes everything easier. Mm-hmm. Power lazy, delivery. Lazy man's it's, bike. it's, it's, yeah. it's the easy man's bike. It's yeah. the, it's the no mistakes bike. It's the never in the wrong gear bike. Yeah. So, and it, it's because you make less mistakes, you can then be path faster or you can post faster lap times or without without having those those essential skills that mm-hmm. needed to do so on a on a two stroke which i actually take quite a bit of pride in being able to go the speed that i do on a 252 stroke cuz i am on 10 year old machine <laughs> yeah it's, it's 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 about to become a, a decade old in a couple of months here and uh the fact that you need to have race craft and some some different elements to your game to make it go the same speed mm-hmm. as a guy who clicks it into third gear and lofts himself over the jump. So, um, well, I, th- I think the be- the world would be a better place on two strokes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I get a tremendous amount of suspension from KTM's, like lots and lots and lots. Probably more KTM suspension than any other. Okay. And this is the first year it's been like that. Before that, it's always been 
Honda, Kawasaki, Yamaha somewhat, and Suzuki yep. taking up the back end, and now, KTM in the middle someplace. But. When you get KTM forks, are the triple clamps attached because the whole bike is snapped snapped in half, or...? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was just wondering. They had that problem with that in the past. Yes, they did. But in in fairness, I've never been a huge supporter of KTM. Mm-hmm. Anybody that knows me knows that's back in Greg's days and Greg Cycle, and mm-hmm. I just I couldn't waste my time on a KTM. But they've come a long ways. And this past summer, um, a young rider out of Kenora has a two fifty two stroke. Yeah. And bought a factory three hundred kit for it. Okay. Uh, right from KTM. Bolts the thing together. He phones me up. He says, oh, I can't ride this thing. I said, why not? He said, it's brutally fast. I said, really? So, talked to some riders and some good pros went out and rode it and came back and said, holy, this is a serious weapon. Okay. Serious weapon. So, I mentioned Earl, you might want to go and talk to your local KTM dealer because you can find it good 252 stroke and put the factory kit on. I'm not talking uh, uh, some Joe Blow's big bore kit out of mm-hmm. nowhere. Yeah. Um, might want to give it a try and see what it does. Mm-hmm. But um, I know that the, the Kenora crowd, that their eyes are big. It's really, really fast. And KTM's got some pretty decent suspension. These new C4 yeah. forks are... They're a little behind the eight ball right now, and my counterpart in America, Rick Johnson, says that's the ugliest fork he's ever seen in his life. But they're super susceptible to oil heights, and if they're set up right, oh my goodness, they're a nice fork. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. obviously, uh, you have WP, White Power, yeah. Yeah, Showa. You, you can't say that. That's, that's <laughs> not politically correct. WP. WP. Yeah. Uh, Showa. KYB is your is and of course then there's Olean's but um, those are your your three major players in terms of uh, yes and no Marzoki and Marzoki yeah, yeah. okay mm-hmm. um, how do they compare to each other what are the pros and cons um, what are some of the things they do well versus each other um, in a dual cartridge fork Showa is the number one fork personally mm-hmm. um, more riders have more success with the Showa dual cartridge. Mm-hmm. Kayaba's air fork leaves a ton to be desired, but when it's set up properly, it's a better fork than the dual cartridge. KTM uses a bladder on their dual cartridge fork. And again, they have air as opposed to a spring. So the KTM done properly is a plusher fork than all of the others. Okay. Um, some guys have a devil of a time trying to make it plush, but it, it has the potential to be plush. The new fork, TAC, the three-air chamber from Showa, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of experience on it, but I have, Rick Johnson has, and he's forwarded me some programs, and, and he he is gung-ho big time on this. But How he, has he air changed your, uh, your, your approach to everything? Um, air is... Um, Oil is incompressible, air isn't. So air chambers become, they push back as hard as you push on them. Mm-hmm. And that's the big single problem with air is that they throw the springs out and now you're just dealing with an air much the same as Fox had back in the late 70s and mm-hmm. into the 80s. Yeah. 
very difficult. Um, even inert gases are affected by heat. They, you know, the big game is if you use nitrogen or argon, uh, it's not affected the, by the heat. air. The air we breathe is seventy percent nitrogen. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. And when all is said and done, oil heats up. Yeah. You know, a, a shock runs at one hundred degrees Celsius. When in in the right hands, mm-hmm. front fork runs at forty degrees Celsius in the right hands with a hard rider on it. Air expands with heat. It, it's just the name of the game. So the bite gets harsher and harsher and harsher. Mm-hmm. Oil becomes good. Oils become critical. And to chase, if you have a basic understanding of hydraulics, you need an oil that is absolutely consistent throughout the temperature range, and it's becoming more and more difficult to get that. And air aggravates that system tremendously. Okay. Um, Jeremy Wolke is a company called MX Tech in America, and Jeremy's lots between the temples. He's okay. really smart. Um, he's developed a um, cartridge system for Cuyahoga's Airport. <laughs> so take it back and put springs in it, is what he's saying. Okay. Because it's, it's easier to deal with. Right. Um, Do you Mark, think that air is that kind of in its spot right now where four strokes were 20 years ago? Where they're like, they have the potential to be better, mm-hmm. but they're in so much of an infancy that they suck right now. Right now. And you know, they don't suck. The new, <laughs> the new three. But three, you know what I mean, the, though? Yeah, like I the original exactly four, like the, 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 the Yamaha 400, yeah. an absolute yeah. pig. It, well, it didn't turn. It didn't turn heavy. Yeah. But that takes me back to the original statement. If you have no balance bike, don't turn. Exactly. So, so you know what I mean? Set it up. Everybody talks. MXA has educated the world into four inches of sag and 22 degrees of trail. But rake, it, it's, it is what it is. And if a bike is set up, then you can ride it. Right. The original 400 Yamaha's biggest single problem wasn't the motor. It was just the weight. Right. The thing was 265 pounds. And, it, you know, they could advertise all they wanted, 240 but it was 25 pounds heavier than that. Yeah. And then you put some big guy on top of that. That's 500 pounds of mass you're trying to twist through the air. It's, it's, it's a porker. Yeah. You well, know. I know Ken had one. Yeah. You had the five, four, twenty-six. You, you, you worked with, uh, yeah. with Earl on those, uh. You, you cannot put enough lipstick on that pig to make it work. Fairly. It just doesn't work that way. No. no, getting back to the, the air, uh, forks, and we mentioned that they've, they're, they're kind of in their infancy. Mm-hmm. Will we see it better? Will we see it completely replace car, uh, yep. cartridge we altogether? Will. We will. It's the future. It's in its infancy, as you say. Um, I have a, an acquaintance who's working on a patent for a air, complete air system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's one of many. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. Excellent. Just keep chasing it. And these new four CS forks from, uh, White P? No. <laughs> WP? WP? Yeah. White P? White P? Um, they're like two thirds the weight of, uh, anybody else's fork. Hmm. So they're really light, but they're incredibly susceptible to oil lights, like five cc's of oil. Yeah. It's a huge difference. Okay. Uh, as far as air to the layperson, Working on it, like you get a brand new 2013, 14, and 15 Hondas that comes with air forks on it. Mm-hmm. And whether you're at different altitudes, whether you're at different temperatures, of course, here in Winnipeg, we can have the heat on on the way to work and the air conditioning on on the way home from work. So we are susceptible to areas where you might have 
your like as far as spring rates go, you mm-hmm. could be cha- your bike could be changing by the hour. Mm-hmm. How does someone stay on top of that? And does that kind of make bikes even more complicated than they already are? Then you uh, part of the reason we're so busy this year, I think, is because some of this new stuff has absolutely destroyed the backyard mechanic mm-hmm. because he, if he had the tools to take it apart, he doesn't have enough knowledge to know that it goes together right when it comes apart. So these things are becoming increasingly complex as they go. But does it make a difference? Your heater's on in the morning and your air conditioning in the afternoon. You go to an American Supercross, and I don't care what pit you're in, they got blankets on the tires. That's and right. The, and the blankets are electric. Mm-hmm. They turn the heat up to keep the tires warm. That's right. For a reason. They do that with forks as well. Do they? They keep the air up because they, 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 you can't set it for cold and expect it to go fast when it's hot. That's you right. You need to set it up to run the way it's going to run. It yeah. has to be. It, it's our change to redline oils because they make zero viscosity, five viscosity, 10 viscosity, 30 viscosity, and they're blendable. So you can make any blend you want to work. And mm-hmm. it's the only oil in the world you can do that with. So, and it's not that I'm particularly plugging redline. I'm just saying that the whole world is, is moving ahead. So if you don't get on the horse, you're not going to be there at the finish line. Fair enough. Well, I believe we have reached the finish line of our chat. We'll, uh, just over an hour and 40 minutes of, uh, of excellent conversation. I, I, I know everyone's going to be able to get through this thing, no problem. It's uh, it was a great conversation. I, I suspect it'll bore a few people. And- That's fine. Hey, uh, there's this. <laughs> you know what? There's a lot of guys who uh, who appreciate a good bench racing session, and I think the, there's a good portion of what this was. Uh, getting some knowledge from from you uh, throughout your your days, as well as uh, some of your thoughts on both the progression of motocross as a sport, some of the athletes that you've deal, dealt with, and uh, just. Um, the, the the sport in general. So uh, yeah, it's great. Anytime you want to do it, just phone and come. Not For sure. And we I appreciate won't your time on the table anymore. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of feedback here and there. Apologize for any of that. No, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Roy. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at bigmxradio.com for more content.